morning, everybody. You'll probably see that we, things are laid out a teeny-weeny bit differently today. Um, we don't have chairs behind the communion table. That is deliberate. Um, I think probably most of our young folk won't be rejoining us for communion at the end of the service. So I'll have to make sure I remember to pray for you before you go out to Sunday school. But if, if you want to come back and your parents are happy for you to come back at that point, that is also absolutely fine. And I trust that Elaine knows what's going on in that regard. Okay, that's fantastic. Some words from the first letter to the church at Corinth and chapter 13. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I would give away all my possessions, And if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope and love abide, these three, And the greatest of these is love. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. Holy God, on this first day of a new week, as we gather to worship you, we come just as we are. Some of us have had a good week. Things have gone well. We feel fulfilled and energised. Some of us have had a difficult week. Things have not gone well. We feel tired and dejected. And some of us have had an ordinary week, neither good or bad, happy or sad. We have no strong emotions. Just as we are, however our weeks have been, we come to you knowing that you welcome us. Just as we are and however we feel, we know that there have been good things about our week. That there have been disappointments in our week. And that we have been brought through another week. Here and now, we choose to be quiet and to turn our attention to you. We cannot see you. We may not hear you, and we probably won't feel you. But you embrace us, you hear us, and you watch over us. Here and now, you enfold every one of us in the embrace of your love. And trusting that to be so, we commend ourselves and our worship to you. In Christ's name. Amen. Our first reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. The Lord said to me, I chose you before I gave you life. And before you were born, I selected you to be a prophet to the nations. I answered, Sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak, I'm too young. 
But the Lord said to me, Do not say that you are too young, but go to the people I send you to and tell them everything I command you to say. Do not be afraid of them, for I will be with you to protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then the Lord stretched out his hand, touched my lips, and said to me, Listen, I am giving you the words you must speak. Today I give you authority over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Our second reading comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 21 to 30. As he said to them, the passage, this passage of scripture has come true today as you heard it being read. They were all well impressed with him and marvelled at the eloquent words that he spoke. They said, isn't he the son of Joseph? He said to them, I am sure that you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. You will also tell me to do here in my hometown the same things you heard were done in Capernaum. I tell you this, Jesus added, the prophets are never welcomed in their hometown. Listen to me. It is true that there were many widows in Israel during the time of Elijah, when there was no rain for three and a half years and a severe famine spread throughout the whole land. Yet Elijah was not sent to anyone in Israel, but only to a widow living in Zarephath in the the territory of Sidon. And there were many people suffering from a dreaded skin disease who lived in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, Yet none of them was healed, but only Naam in the Syrian. When, when the people in the synagogue heard this, they were filled up with anger. They rose up, dragged Jesus out of the town, and took him to the top of the hill on which their town was built. They meant to throw him over the cliff, but he walked through the middle of the crowd and went his way. Amen. The synagogue was packed to capacity. The readers had been allocated. This man would read from the Torah, and that man would be allocated to read from the prophets. That man was Yeshua, a man in his early 30s, who has to be said seems to have been born under something of a cloud. He'd been brought up as the son of Joseph, a local Nazareth man, devout in faith and practice. Despite his dubious beginnings, he seemed to have turned out all right. In fact, he too seems to be very devout. He had been baptised along with the followers of his cousin, John, and then he had disappeared off into the wilderness for a while, before heading home with some of his newly acquired followers. Perhaps he was, in fact, the leader of an embryonic rabbinic school. It would be intriguing to see which passage he chose to read and what he chose to say. For the record shows that he was also the invited preacher that day. Asking for the scroll of Isaiah, Yeshua, Jesus, unrolled it, chose his passage and read aloud. Everyone listened keenly 
as he read the words that were all too familiar, hinting as they did to the day when the anointed one would liberate Israel and would declare the day of God's wrath and God's judgment on their enemies. He read well, this son of Joseph. He chose a wonderful passage, but hang on a minute. He stopped short of the end. He left out the stuff about vengeance. And what's more, he sneaked in a line from elsewhere. What was going on? Intrigued, bemused, bewildered. They waited to see how the sermon would unfold. Luke's account of the sermon is at best sketchy and in fact might be limited to the single sentence with which Jesus begins before it moves on to the events that followed. Today, said Jesus, this prophecy has found fulfilment. Wow, they thought, if that's true, liberation is on its way. No more Romans. And what's more, we can take our revenge on those who've oppressed us or insulted us or ridiculed us. We can have a holy war if that's what it means and that's what it takes because surely God is on our side and this could be the time. Could this be? Could this local land be the one who God has chosen to bring us freedom? All sorts of thoughts must have gone through the minds of the people who were there listening. And we get a sense that Jesus had a pretty good idea what they were thinking. You think you know what this is all about, don't you? You think you know what I'm all about. (laughs) But the truth is, a prophet is never truly welcome in their hometown, in the place where they grew up and people think they know them. Jesus makes it quite clear that he sees himself at this point as a prophet and he doesn't pull his punches. He has the audacity to say, and you're not going to like what I say to you. I wonder how that felt. I think they've been smiling and nodding up to then, enjoying the familiar words. And and it's nice and thinking, well, this is going to be great. We're going to get an uplifting, inspiring sermon to follow. It's a lovely Saturday. We're really happy. And then Jesus blows it. Think about the time of the prophet Elijah, he says. Remember that terrible famine everybody experienced? And what happened? God sent Elijah to stay with a foreign widow at Zarephath, a Gentile woman who took him in and shared what she had with him, sacrificially. Or what about the time of Elisha? Remember that foreigner from Syria, Naaman, the man stricken with a skin disease or leprosy, and his wife's serving girl mentioned the possibility of healing. Don't you think there were plenty of hungry widows in Israel at the time of Elijah? Don't you think there were plenty of Israelites stricken by leprosy or other dread diseases in the time of Elisha? And God chose to help these foreigners, to bless these outsiders. 
Well, you could feel the atmosphere change in the room. Perhaps they began to realise that Jesus had deliberately omitted those vital words about God's wrath from the prophecy. And worse still, he seemed to be suggesting, no, he seemed to be asserting that God was including in the day of favour those foreigners who had traditionally been the enemies of Israel, of right religion, of right behaving. Could it really be the case that accident of birth was no longer a good enough reason to exclude? Was it possible that God's promises extended beyond one racial group? Intrigue turned to indignation and then to ire. The once attentive congregation became a kangaroo court and Jesus was frog-marched out of the building, through the town and up to a precipice from which they could hurl him and then stone him to death. Except it didn't quite happen like that. Jesus walked away unscathed. The crowd dispersed. Scholars offer us various attempts to explain and interpret this account. Some see a clear resonance with the third temptation recorded only a few verses and assume some kind of supernatural intervention. If you remember, Jesus was tempted to jump off the temple and angels would catch him. And some people think that somehow this was a similar event. Some people see a clear resonance with the story of the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts, which shares a common author with with Luke's gospel. Is this a kind of foreshadowing of things that will come? Or is Stephen an echo of what happened to Jesus? Some of them see there's a clear parallel with events in John 2, the wedding at Cana we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and Jesus' reference to the fact that his hour has not yet come. Still others see it as a foreshadowing of the events at at the end of Jesus' earthly life with another kangaroo court, another hill, a real execution and a resurrection. Now, any of those could be true and I think each of them is worth considering and has something to think about. You know, it's worth thinking about and seeing what it has to say to us. But I wonder if it could be simply the case that by the time they reached that precipice, they'd calmed down enough to reflect on their actions. Could it be the case that they actually began to think about the consequences if they killed this man? Could it be that they began to get a glimpse of what he was trying to say? And in all of this, however it happened... Might it not be the case that God's spirit was at work to bring to fruition the promises of God? We're told that Jesus then went on his way, leaving Nazareth behind and going instead to Capernaum, where he began to teach, preach, exorcise, heal and reach out to people in need. 
there is no sense in this early stage of Jesus reaching beyond his country folk. He is seen in synagogues and in Jewish towns. A mission to those termed Gentile has not yet begun. But a line has been drawn in the sand that will shape the rest of his ministry and, as we know, lead ultimately to Calvary. I wonder how we hear the story. In fact, I wonder where we would put ourselves within it. What if we were to place ourselves in the congregation? Good, devout, God-fearing Jews, faithful in public worship and private prayer, well-versed in what the law and the prophets have to say, clear on how scripture should be heard and understood. What then do we do when someone starts to read it differently, choosing neither total literalism nor critical deconstructionism, but daring to assert that these words are indeed inspired by God and that actually thus far we've not quite understood them or we've misunderstood them. What if somebody dares to do as Jesus did, assuming Luke's account is to be trusted, and sneak in a line from somewhere else or stop halfway through a verse? What if someone dares to suggest that God's plan for inclusion and blessing extend beyond the boundaries that we have as yet identified? Might it be that we, like those in the Nazareth synagogue, find ourselves first uncomfortable and then increasingly angry? Might it be the case that whilst we would never actually threaten to kill someone, we might do everything in our power to make sure that they knew our disapproval and that they never darkened our doors or our pulpit again? Jesus did not pull his punches. He didn't offer a nice pastoral sermon with get-out clauses for his hearers. He told them plainly, this is what it says, and this is what I am about. Faith and action working together. I think it is a very brave man or woman who takes that kind of stand. A very brave person who will risk their livelihood, their home, their pension, their community, their friends to say, and this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It takes a very convicted person to preach uncomfortable truths and then accept the consequences. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I don't really want to be made that uncomfortable. And actually, I don't want to make other people 
so uncomfortable that they get cross with me or they don't like me because I quite like being liked. I quite like people saying nice things to me. But there is something in that story about the cost of actually saying what God leads you to say, being who God leads you to be. Or what if we were to put ourselves in the place of Jesus? And I don't think that's blasphemous. Not as individuals, but as a congregation. Using that overworked phrase about us being the body of Christ. As we read the scripture, and as we listen for the voice of God speaking to us through it, and through our spirit-guided conversations, as we seek together to discern a common mind. That is how we put ourselves in the place of Jesus, in that corporate discernment, in that communal listening, in all of that. What does it then mean if we find ourselves like Jesus in a situation where our hearers, those beyond, want something nice and familiar when we together deduce that God is saying something new? What if people got angry with us and sought to drive us to the top of a metaphorical hill in order to expel us? And what if they then stopped short of that and gave us the opportunity to fulfil what it is that we believed God had called us to do, be, say? The prophetic role, whether it is personal or corporate, is characterised by risk and rejection of being misunderstood and misquoted, of being wrongly accused and even abused. It's not a path to be taken lightly and there is no sense of self-satisfaction or self-gratification to be gained from accepting such a call of God. No smug defining of ourselves as mavericks or as the ones with the truth over against them. The true prophet, individual or community, like Jeremiah, like Moses, like Elijah, like Anna, like Deborah, will be all too aware of their limitations, their desire for an easier life, free from danger free from anger, free from sorrow. In that very short reading we had from the book of Jeremiah, he made protestations about his age, about his ability to speak. And God, quite frankly, wasn't interested. I have a suspicion The same is true for us. God's not interested in our excuses, our protestations as to why we can't or shouldn't do what it is that we trust God is saying needs to be done. Jeremiah wasn't promised ease or eloquence. He wasn't even promised success. What he was promised was that God would be with him as he fulfilled the task that had been assigned to him. To be a 
Christian witness in this part of Glasgow is, I suggest, a prophetic task. To aspire to be an inclusive community of faith is a prophetic task. To choose to provide a safe space for people whose lives have been blighted by addiction to alcohol, drugs or tobacco, where they can meet and support one another, is a prophetic task. To welcome overseas students who are far from their loved ones and in a strange culture is a prophetic task. To include and value within our community people who may disagree profoundly on theological, ethical or other issues is a prophetic task. To discern together how these premises and this site best serve the kingdom of God is a prophetic task. To aspire to live what we say, to accept that we will disappoint each other, we will offend one another in that endeavour, and yet we still will choose to love one another and go forwards together, is a prophetic task task. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon us. We have been anointed for service. And though that service may bring us trials and tribulations, the same sovereign God is with us and will always, always hold us in a love from which we cannot be separated. Mixing and matching my scriptures. Yep. Something we hear from God. I hope so. Let us come together in our prayers for others and in our prayers for each other. Living God, who first loved us through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we bring before you this morning and every morning. We bring before you others, we bring before you each other, and we bring before you ourselves in humble acknowledgement that all have our needs and concerns, all have our certainties and our doubts. All have the ability to love and to hurt, yet all are welcome in this place. We pray for your guidance in showing us the way to truly love one another as you first loved us. All are welcome in this place through your everlasting grace. Humbling God, Forgive us when we fail to respond to that which you would have us to do. When as individuals or as a community of faith, we take the easy way out rather than speaking out. When as individuals or as a community of faith, we speak out rather than showing patience and tolerance. We pray for your wisdom the wisdom to open our eyes and our ears, 
to open our hearts and our minds so that we can see and hear your guidance to live our lives as you have taught us. For all are welcome in this place through your everlasting grace. Forgiving God, who is slow to anger and quick to show mercy, just as we are slow to act out your prophecies and quick to offer excuses. We give thanks for all the gifts that you have showered upon us, the gift of life in all its fullness, the gift of a relationship with you through the new covenant, the gift of being able to ask for forgiveness and the gift to receive it. Help us to show mercy to others, to show tolerance and to act patiently so that we may forgive others as we have been forgiven. For all are welcome in this place through your everlasting grace. Loving God, who walked the difficult path, God of the strong but tender love, God of compassion but also of justice, be with us all in our worship, in our fellowship, in our relationships, and in our living. And also in all that we do, in all that we say, and in all that we are. For all are welcome in this place, through your everlasting grace. Amen. We have seen your glory here, O Lord. May we see it in the world. We have known your presence here, O Lord. May we know it everywhere. We have received your love, O Lord. May we give you ours. Through Christ our Lord.